This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the 100th episode of the programme and Irish Times perspectives on matters foreign from our network of correspondents around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. Today we're looking at the opening of the Paris Climate Change Conference. In Paris, Frank MacDonald, for many years our environment editor, looks back on the long road to Paris and the challenges it faces. And Harry McGee joins us from the studio also to explore some of those challenges, not least Ireland's special pleading on agriculture. Are we being led by the nose by our farmers? And from Brazil, Tom Hennigan on the far-reaching corruption scandal that has engulfed the ruling Workers' Party. The whole affair, allegations about bribes and commissions connected to the awarding of contracts for the giant state oil company Petrobras, has dominated Brazilian politics for several years. But last week, further arrests involving one of the, the country's leading investment bankers and a senior politician has brought in yet another new twist. The scandal has probably cost the company some $11 billion so far. But first to Paris. Frank MacDonald, again at a climate summit, you've attended not a few. Rio, Kyoto, I think. Perhaps you could start by looking back on your experience of them and, and looking at the scale of, of this one and how different it is. Well, Paddy, I, I, I started off by recalling that um, the first COP, uh, the first conference of the parties um, to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change took place in Berlin in 1995 and was chaired by then little-known German politician, um, a woman, um, who we came to know as Angela Merkel. And she was the um, she was brilliant uh, at what she did. Uh, and she was the one who gaveled the thing through and, and made sure that we were on our way to Kyoto two years later, uh, where, of course, the famous protocol was adopted. And that was the first international legal instrument uh, to, de- to give effect to the, the Framework Convention. Um, and with its requirement that uh, some 37 developed countries, uh, including uh, all of the members of the OECD and the so-called economies in transition, i.e. Russia and the other ex-communist countries um, in, in uh, Eastern Europe, that, uh, that they would cut their emissions by a certain percentage um, um, in, in, between then and uh, and, and 2012, which actually they did manage to do. But the thing about it is, of course, that um, the number of countries involved in Kyoto that were actually bound by it uh, was quite small and, and covered less than half of the total emissions. And then when the U.S. pulled out, it covered even less. Um, so in a way, it was a kind of um, a, a prototype uh, of sorts for what we're now dealing with, which is essentially an effort to achieve um, what's described as a comprehensive universal agreement uh, that would bind uh, all countries, uh, whether they were already developed or developing um, uh, and so on, into the same effort uh, to deal with what is uh, clearly recognised as as the most serious environmental uh, crisis facing humanity. Well, the scale is certainly different. We've got 190 uh, states made pe- made uh, commitments and 195. 195 actually. states made yeah, uh, commitments. The European Union. Um, do you have a sense now? 
that the argument finally is not about whether or not there's a man-made disaster in the making, but about really about commitments and, and, who, and how oh, much yes. people are going to commit. Oh, that whole argument is gone completely. I think that that's, that's, uh, argument has been won, and it has been won uh, basically not just by the scientists, uh, but also by, you know, what's happening on the ground in a whole lot of different places. Uh, I mean, anyone who heard uh, the president of the Marshall Islands um, in the Pacific uh, talking uh, at the uh, climate conference yesterday, you know, would, would be moved to, to, you know, when you realize that, you know, this country may not exist in 20 years' time if, if at the rate things are going. Um, and, you know, the skeptics and denialists and others uh, tried to muddy the waters over the years, just just indeed as uh, as the tobacco lobbyists did years ago, uh, you know, in denying the links between, um, between smoking and cancer. Um, they were denying any link between um, between greenhouse gas emissions and and uh, the the warming world, and that I think that they've been pretty well sidelined at this stage. Um, I mean, they're, they're, the argument is now about how to deal with this rather than whether it's happening. Um, everybody recognises that it, that it is happening, which is not something, by the way, that was the case in 1995 um, or even later, uh, when you know the whole thing seemed to be much more distant um, as a threat, something that would affect our grandchildren, kind of thing. Whereas, in fact, um, you know, all of the evidence suggests that, that it's happening right now, and that we're already at the threshold of uh, one degree of warming since. Uh, pre-industrial times and uh, we're heading for two um, unless um, serious steps are taken to curtail emissions uh, and to uh, put the world on a path towards a low carbon or even zero carbon economy. But, and, and there's definitely a sense that there's a new dynamic to, to this particular conference. Oh yes. And, uh, and newspapers uh, have talked about a sort of outpouring of promises. But the pledges absolutely. from the 195 countries would probably be insufficient to prevent two yes. degrees rise in temperature. I mean, is that, that is, not the case? That is, that's already acknowledged, Paddy. I mean, the, the, the position is that uh, some 180 countries out of the 195 have made um, their intended nationally determined contributions and submitted them to the UNFCCC. Um, and uh, an analysis by the UN Environment Programme shows that, there would, that, that, that even if all of these commitments were actually implemented uh, over the next 15 years, that there would still be a gap, an emissions gap of 12 billion tonnes of carbon uh, in the atmosphere in, in, 19, in, in 2030. So, you know, um, that is something that has to be dealt with. Um, and the only, what they're talking about in Paris, in, in, you know, it's, it's a 54-page negotiating text, which I've been wading through today. And honestly, um, you know, you wouldn't envy the negotiators because uh, they are faced with, uh, you know, uh, so many contentious items, all of which are bracketed uh, in square brackets. Um, and I counted the number of brackets and it comes to 1,617 pieces of bracketed text. So, you know, that's an enormous task or mountain to overcome between now and next Friday. Friday week, uh, the 11th of December, which is uh, the date 
that the conference is expected to conclude. And indeed, uh, the the presiding um, COP president, um, the French foreign minister, Laurent Fabius, has made it clear that he intends to finish the conference on the appointed day and not to allow it to run on, as some of them have done, for a day or more after that. Um, so there's a, there's a momentum to achieve agreement. Um, and a lot of the, I suppose, the... The speeches by world leaders, including Barack Obama and the and um, you know uh, and many of many of the others, have made really impassioned speeches at the at the summit. Um, that they that they're effectively setting the tone um, for the negotiations that are going to follow between now and the end of next week. And is, is there any possibility in in the course of that 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 those those pledges that have been made by the 180 countries are can be raised, or is there some mechanism to to well, go back on that is, at a later stage? Well, this is this is also in the in the text, of course, that uh, there there's um, uh, efforts being made to ensure that the adequacy of commitments are reviewed over time, uh, and that preferably at least every five years. Um, and so, but the, there's issues then about, you know, when do you have the first review? Like the, don't forget that the agreement is only supposed to take effect in 2020. Um, it's not going to take effect immediately. So when do you have your first review? Do you wait for 2025? Is that too late? Uh, or do you wait, or do you have a, a review after 10 years, by which time it will almost certainly be too late to do anything, anything further about it? Uh, because by that stage, we might even have reached a kind of a, a, a the threshold of a tipping point, if not a tipping point itself. Now the critical issue, one understands, is whether or not this agreement that, that, that they reach at the end of next week will be uh, binding and legally enforceable. How do you do that well, in pra practical terms? And, and how close well, are they to an agreement on, it, on it being binding? This is a conundrum, really, because uh, the, the problem with a legally binding agreement, which uh, or a treaty, basically, an international treaty, um, which is what Kyoto was, um, that was a that, that was a legally binding instrument. Um, the problem with that is that here, anyway, it's recognised that you know such a treaty, if it was called that, would have to be ratified by various national parliaments, and there is simply no way in the world that the U.S. Congress and particularly the U.S. Senate, um, which is controlled by the Republican Party now, uh, will ratify it. So. You know, uh, I mean, it, it's going to be called something else. It's going to be called the Paris Accord or the Paris Agreement or the Paris something, but certainly not the Paris Treaty and or anything, anything that would smack of an internationally legally binding instrument. So, in effect, the compliance um, will be... Uh, the compliance with the terms of it will be more moral than legal. Um, but But... If there is a review mechanism and if there is a way of ratcheting up the commitments that have already been made, then that will amount to something, you know. And I think, um, you know, Paris will then have marked um, a, a, a crucial turning point. At the heart of the, the conference, there is a big, still a, a major uh, row between the developing and developed countries over, over resources. That's always been the case, buddy. Yeah, indeed. And and how is that going to be resolved at this particular uh, conference? Well, in the way I suppose, in the way that it's been resolved uh, in the past, um, which is essentially by by reaching a, uh, reaching a consensus um, uh, at the end of the day. And don't forget that. 
the UNFCCC operates on the basis of consensus, um, you know, so that so that all countries have to be on board. That's why the Copenhagen Agreement failed in 2009, because it was a deal done behind closed doors by Barack Obama and the leaders of China, India, uh, Brazil and South Africa. Um, and uh, famously or notoriously, um, the then president of the European Commission, uh, Barroso, uh, found out about it by, when he got a text message to say the deal had been done. And there was a revolt on the part of, of a, a, a large number of delegations, particularly from Latin America, against uh, what they saw as something being handed down from on high, like a tablet from the mountaintop. And, you know, that's not something that can happen here or will happen here. I think that there is going to be an agreement. Um, and the issue is about adequacy, whether the agreement is going to be adequate to the task ahead or whether it's just going to be um, papering over uh, the differences that, it, that clearly do exist between the developed uh, countries and those that are still developing. Well, as well as American enthusiasm, we see much more uh, solid China uh, and India commitments in, in, in terms of this uh, uh, summit. Yeah, well, I mean, the Indian thing is, uh, you know, China, I think, is, is certainly got the, got the message. I mean, not just because it's concerned about the climate, but also because it's, it's deeply concerned uh, about uh, the health of its own people, given the uh, horrific levels of air pollution in Beijing and other Chinese cities, um, which is caused by coal and traffic smog. Um, and, you know, that's something that they're going to have to deal with um, uh, anyway. Um, so it's a win-win situation for them uh, if they reduce fossil fuels. And in fact, in China, they've, they've been cancelling plans for more coal-fired power stations. I mean, at one stage, the Chinese were, build, were allegedly building a new power station, a new coal-fired power station every month uh, in the past. But that, that's no longer the case. They've, there's been a major switch to renewables. Uh, and, and China is, I think, is on the road and, 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 and knows it. Uh, whereas India... Is, has always been a little bit more truculent in relation to all of these things. And, you know, whereas um, Modi announced uh, this solar, this very impressive solar initiative yesterday, the truth of the matter is that, that, that the Indians are still building coal-fired power stations um, and, and they really ought not to be doing that because there is the possibility of providing energy from renewable sources and they should, they should do that as a priority. And let's not forget that solar is now competitive uh, with fossil fuels. So, so the price of, 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 of solar energy has come down dramatically in the last few years. Uh, and that's something that, that, they, that they no doubt have taken on board. Thank you very much, Frank. Now, Harry, uh, Enda Kenny was speaking at the summit on, on Monday. He wants us to believe that Ireland is seriously engaged in the whole uh, challenge. Uh, do we believe him? <laughs> That's a very uh, difficult question. Um, well, uh, it depends on, on, on with what ears you're listening with, Paddy, because he's been speaking with forked tongue. I mean, if you listen to the rhetoric of the speech that he delivered on Monday, uh, you would believe that Ireland was not alone serious, but extolling other countries to be as serious as Ireland in its endeavours. But then when you look at the details and look at some of the key lines in the speech, you look, that, you look uh, to see that Ireland is looking for a, a get-out clause, a get-out-of-jail-free card in relation to key sectors, namely agriculture. Agriculture is a big difficulty for Ireland. It comprises about 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions. This comes from methane. 
from ruminant animals like uh, cattle, sheep, pigs, and what have you. And to be blunt, farting and belching. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for phrasing it in such a <laughs> poetic way, Paddy, but that's exactly it, just from, from belching and from flatulence. So um, it, it causes a huge uh, problem because we have big herds uh, in both the dairy sector and also in the beef sector. And um, essentially, really, to achieve uh, the uh, more onerous goals that have been set for 2030, we will essentially have to reduce the national herd. And this is anathema, and not only to Fine Gael and government, uh, but also to uh, a lot of other mainstream parties. It's anathema to the farming uh, lobby. And it comes at a time when quotas have been dispensed with. And uh, the Minister for Agriculture and others are talking about a, a very ambitious expansion of Irish agricultural uh, production. So um, you're having a, a conflict there uh, between what Ireland needs to do to achieve um, its cl- uh, climate change uh, ambitions and what it wants to do in agriculture. And there is no solution for it. Uh, what the Taoiseach was arguing for on Monday was <coughs> essentially uh, um, uh, a free pass for Ireland uh, to, to be an exception. And the argument that the government uh, has made is that Irish agriculture is amongst the most sustainable in the world. Um, We're relatively good on dairy. We're probably joint first in Europe in terms of sustainability on dairy, but we're fifth in terms of uh, beef. Um, uh, But the argument that was echoed by the ICMSA today is that Ireland should be one of the few centres in the world uh, that is used uh, for beef and for dairy production. Uh, because the argument that they have is that if you cut Irish production, it's going to be replaced by uh, beef and uh, dairy products that come uh, from areas of the world where the practices are less sustainable. Um, it's a, a tricky argument for the government to make. To make, I don't think it's a sustainable argument, uh, to be quite honest, uh, Paddy. And I think the European Commission have met it uh, with uh, deaf ears, to be quite honest. Well, it certainly seemed until recently that the, that the Commission was listening to Ireland on this, but it does, in, in, in the last 10 days, there are reports that the Commission is shifting its ground and that it may be coming under pressure from other uh, newer member states who are also uh, uh, agricultural producers, uh, that they don't see why Ireland should get a special treatment. Uh, absolutely, and that seems to... Uh, Suzanne uh, Lynch uh, reported to that effect from Brussels over the course of uh, the weekend, and it does seem to be the case uh, that the Commission may have looked benevolently at Ireland's case at the summit last October, in October 2014, uh, should I say. But since then, the tide has turned and the view in relation to Ireland's obligations has shifted and Ireland doesn't look like it is going to get any uh, exceptional case treatment in relation to the agricultural sector. Now, today, Antashka was going as far as suggesting that the uh, Ireland should just abandon beef production uh, in favour of, of forestry uh, and that the forestry would actually be a sink into which and they would get carbon credits for, for, for this and that this is an entirely different way. Uh, is a revolution in Irish agriculture of that kind feasible? Um, it, well, it, technically, it probably is feasible, but politically, it's not going to happen. Um, it's not you're, you're not going to see that type of a sea change, especially not in, in this uh, generation now, in 20 or 30 years' time. Uh, that might become a biddable proposition. But at this very moment in time, I don't think that's possible. It's just too radical. It's just too absolute. 
and um, Ireland would probably argue that why, why should we move uh, while other agriculture, it's the first mover um, dilemma, why should we move uh, when other uh, economies are refusing to uh, do their part. So I think that what you will see though is that you will see incremental change. But the government is uh, putting all its uh, money into a number of solutions. It's hoping that there can be a technological breakthrough in terms of, of feed technology uh, that will stop um, ruminants putting so much methane into the atmosphere. Uh, they're also looking at um, compensatory measures. They're looking at, for example, um, um, what's described as Lulu CF, which is land use, land use change, forestation, where, whereby new forests are created, created and the carbon capture the, 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 the savings that are made in terms of carbon uh, from that new afforestation uh, can offset uh, the amount of methane uh, that is being produced in the agriculture sector. But each and every one of these solutions uh, only gouge at the margins. They won't have an appreciable effect on reducing which it would, would comp- what comprises a huge chunk of Irish uh, emissions. 33, 30% of all emissions come from agriculture. It's a huge chunk, much larger uh, than any of our counterparts in the EU. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a major challenge if we're to meet the 40% reduction target that the EU has agreed. And well, if it doesn't come from agriculture, how, does it, how do we make it? Well, I was listening to uh, John Sweeney, uh, the uh, Professor Emeritus from Maynooth University, who is an expert on such matters, uh, being interviewed during the weekend. And he was saying that if agriculture was given uh, that type of uh, exceptional case status, uh, the reductions on the other two major sectors, electricity and transport, would have to be down to zero almost. So that would mean that everybody... Uh, would be driving an electric car in 2030, that all our electricity would come from renewable sources and that people wouldn't be in a position to, for example, use stoves or fires in in their um, homes. And that, again, uh, is, is, I mean, Ireland can go a long way to achieving that, but I think it's too, it's too close. It's, uh, 2030 is only 15 years away and that's too much to ask over a comparatively short period of time. And the reality, of course, is that if if changes, dramatic changes in agriculture are politically difficult for the government, such changes would be extremely politically difficult as well. Uh, absolutely, and this is the, the difficulty that the, the government has. So, um, I, I, I mean, it's going to miss its 2020 targets, and if the basis for the 2020 targets... Um, is is set at the high level that they're expected to be set at the moment. The government will have huge difficulties in relation to the 2030 uh, target. So it's either going to have to pay uh, uh, a fine, essentially, uh, for how much it's missed its target by, and that will run into many millions uh, of euro, uh, or else it's going to have to take very radical measures. And the political appetite to take such radical measures, particularly in the agricultural sector, is just not there at the moment. Not only uh, in, in Fine Gael, but also in the two main uh, uh, opposition parties, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. What was uh, astounding uh, today was the uh, lack of a response uh, by either of the parties uh, to what Mr Kenny had to say yesterday, uh, both uh, to the Paris talks and also in the comments that he made to reporters, including to the Irish Times, uh, about the agriculture sector. So I think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, and Sinn Féin are conscious that the farming community uh, makes up at least some of uh, their respective support bases. 
and of course this is a decision discussion that will be happening beyond the the summit the, the none of these issues are are going to be resolved Abs- uh, in in paris in uh, fact that they are peripheral to it yeah absolutely what happens is that the, the eu will will negotiate as a block and it has already offered to uh, reduce emissions by 40% uh, by 2030 compared to 1990 levels. And then what happens in the springtime is that uh, there will be talks in Brussels about uh, how that 40% reduction uh, will be uh, divvied out between uh, all EU member states. So Ireland is hoping uh, that it won't be asked to bear the full burden of 40%, but that the figure that will be asked for Ireland will be somewhat less than that. And uh, figures in the mid-20s have been uh, suggested uh, by officials. Uh, that might be wishful thinking, Paddy. Uh, we will have to wait until the spring to see if that uh, uh, materialises or not. Thank you, Harry. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code Irish Times to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. In Brazil on Monday, the embattled Petrobras saw its chairman, Murillo Ferreira, resign. He has allegedly clashed with the chief executive over cost-cutting and how to put into effect the company's plan to raise more than $57 billion through asset sales by the end of 2017. Tom Hennigan, Petrobras is in a shocking state. Can you give us a sense of this company and the trouble it's in? A bit like Watergate, I gather, the cover-up appears to be the problem. Um, Petrobras is... uh Brazil's most iconic company. Uh, It was founded in 1953 to try and wean the country's dependence off imported oil. It succeeded in doing that. Uh, It is the the country's biggest uh, company by far. It actually invests more each year in infrastructure than the federal government itself. And for years in Brazil, it was a source of great pride and particularly because despite the fact it was a state-run company, it managed to balance um, technical uh, competency at, at the, throughout the organization with a highly politicized uh, senior management, which was uh, controlled and appointed by, by the federal government. Um, the situation, though, has dramatically deteriorated in the last number of years. And ironically, the, the starting uh, point for this deterioration seems to have been the discovery of massive new oil fields in Brazil in the middle of the last decade. And the country saw itself transforming, uh, being transformed from something that was self-sufficient in oil to actually becoming a major exporter. And this unleashed a huge amount of excitement, particularly amongst Brazil's political class. And they seem to have started, therefore, um, undermining some of the, uh, the technical uh, cadre within the company with political appointees, with political interference, and demanding that Petrobras would become a major motor of industrial development in Brazil. And the result was that the, that the politicians seemed to have been overambitious. Uh, Petrobras ran up an absolutely enormous debt. Um, and it has the biggest corporate debt in the world now at around 130 billion U.S. dollars. It's signed up for numerous projects 
that have all been left exposed by the drop in the oil price uh, over the last two years. And now it's it's facing a major downsizing. It's trying to, as you said, sell assets. It's put a lot of its major uh, projects into mothballs. Um, and it is essentially trying to recover its financial health that was undermined by political interference. And that political interference goes hand in hand with an even darker problem within Petrobras, which has been exposed by federal prosecutors in Brazil over the last two years, which is, is just massive, egregious corruption, where Brazil's political system, uh, the politicians at the top of the federal structure, siphoned billions out of the company. And they did that with the cooperation of, of Brazilian companies, private companies that supplied Petrobras. And now that that is beginning to unravel as well, Brazil is becoming increasingly clear there wasn't just mismanagement that has essentially left Petrobras almost broke, but it was also crime, uh, criminal activity, just blatant robbery by politicians for party purposes, and increasingly it's becoming clear for some of their own private gain. These are kickbacks from, from uh, the awarding of contracts, is that right? Kickbacks where companies would um, lobby politicians for Petrobras contracts, and the politicians would demand um, a certain uh, kickback, usually somewhere we are told between one and a half and three percent. But these contracts were um, priced in the in the billions, and there were loads of them, and more and more of them coming. Um, on it down the line as Petrobras turned to developing these new offshore oil fields. And the payback or the quid pro quo seems to have been that the politicians, having received the money, not only allowed these companies then to uh, circumvent um, uh, tendering processes to, to get these contracts, they then allowed the companies to massively overbill Petrobras. And so Petrobras saw projects, one refinery, very polemical refinery in the northeast of Brazil, which was originally budgeted for $2 billion U.S. dollars and was recently delivered for about $20 billion. And um, the opposition and, and local Brazilian media have been trying to get answers from Petrobras and its political masters how that cost overrun got completely out of control. And no one has ever been able to explain it fully. But now we know from federal prosecutors that a lot of that was due to overbilling, which politicians tolerated. And not only that way did the companies get back the bribes they paid to get the contract, they were able to pad out their profits. And then a, a second sort of kickback was that those companies are among the major donors, and this is not under-the-table donations, but legal donations to Brazilian political campaigns. But obviously they were using uh, these padded profits to be able to make those donations. So it was... Um, including in, including the, the governing uh, Workers' Party? And this was across the board. All parties seem to have been doing it, um, but including the Government Workers' Party, its allies. Uh, Brazil has a system called presidential coalitions. Um, so the president has to build an, ally, an alliance, a coalition in Congress amongst parties. So uh, the Workers' Party and Lula seem to have, or some of his top lieutenants, tolerated its coalition partners doing this. But the Workers' Party's uh, uh, party treasurer is currently under arrest facing uh, charges in the case. And also, uh, we have had many kind of um, indications from certain people involved in the scandal, which for the moment is only focusing on the period when the Workers' Party had been in power, that, that the, the party and Lula's team inherited this scheme, that it's actually been around for a long time. But they seem to have 
kicked it into overdrive, whether because of their own greed or their own sense of impunity or because of these new oil fields, the number of contracts coming through it just became so uh, so many more and of, of huge higher value that the numbers just became absurd, the amount that was being stolen from the company. Now, I gather the, the I mean, this has been going on now, the, the scandal has been going on for, for a couple of years, but on Wednesday there were two startling uh, arrests, one of a, a senior senator close to Dilma uh, Rousseff, the president, and, and a billionaire investment banker. Uh, one of the co- top country's top financial executives. W- why is this, has, has this turn happened? Well, um, these two, the senator, Adel Fidu Amaral, who was uh, the Workers' Party's floor leader in the senator, so a key, key figure in um, connecting uh, the president, uh, the executive of the presidential palace with the Congress, and Andre Estevez, who a billionaire investment banker, the kind of the star banker during the Workers' Party's uh, period in power until Wednesday's arrest. The two of them were charged with trying to obstruct the course of justice, which is actually far more serious in, in the eyes of prosecutors than even some of the billion-dollar corruption schemes that others have been charged with. And it was a former Petrobras executive, when he was picked up as part of the case, these two men seem to have conspired, according to prosecutors, still to be proven, but they seem to have conspired to get that former Petrobras executive out of jail by pressuring the Supreme Court and then pay for him to flee to Spain, and that that this banker, Andre Estevez, would then provide him with around €12,500 a month to stay quiet about what he knew. And when the, when the federal prosecutors were handed or, or got access to a secret recording of the senator discussing this, they decided to move. But this went off like a bomb in Brazil last week, number one, because Andre Estevez is one of probably the most uh, prominent banker in the country. He was seen as a golden boy. He was uh, a symbol of Brazil's um, increasing global clout in business and everything. And now he was behind bars. And the senator became the first senator since the return of democracy in the 1980s, serving senator to be arrested. And the Senate, which is normally so lenient about wrongdoing amongst its members, was so shocked by what the prosecutors presented as the basis for his arrest that they voted to keep him in detention. And now what it is is that the two of them in the hands of prosecutors, in detention, are now going to come under extreme pressure from their families and from prosecutors to agree a plea bargain agreement. And again, it's what it is, is we're moving up the food chain, if you like, in Brazil, where the investigation has been going there for about 20 months. It started with mid-ranking managers and underworld uh, money launderers, and it's been moving up the food chain. And now we're getting to very senior figures, and there is palpable fear amongst the political class in Brasil, particularly, that if Senator Amaral does agree a plea bargain agreement, it could massively complicate the life of President Dilma, former President Lula, and many other figures in the capital. They've so far uh, managed to, to, to keep at arm's length from, from, from this, uh, though Dilma's popularity, I gather, has, has eroded substantially since her re-election in October uh, because of the, of the recession. But there, is a, there are signs that she, she might actually be dragged into this. There are. uh, The uh, Petrobras executive that the senator and the banker were trying to get out of the country, 
he has agreed a plea bargain agreement uh, with prosecutors. And according to media leaks, still to be confirmed, but according to leaks, which on the whole have been pretty accurate throughout the scandal, he says that, um, that President Rousseff, when she was chair of the Petrograd board, lobbied very hard for the purchase of a rusted old banger of a refinery in Texas. And that was owned by a, a Belgian trading group that had paid around $50 million for it. And then a year later, Petrobras came in and decided to buy it for a billion. And that is one of the key uh, deals being looked at by prosecutors because there's no logical business explanation for this deal. And Dilma has always said that she authorized as chair the purchase of that refinery because she had been uh, presented with technical data by the company saying this was a good deal. She didn't study it enough, but she signed off on it in good faith. Now it seems that this former executive is saying, well, actually, that's not the case, that she was lobbying hard for a deal. And that might um, actually be a, an example of the impropriety that could lead her to being impeached, even though nothing has been found criminally against her at the moment. Thank you very much, Tom. That's all from Worldview this week. I'm Patrick Smith. Thanks to Frank McDonald, Harry McGee, Tom Hennigan, and our producer Sinead O'Shea and Gary White on sound.